So welcome along to another episode of this sermon expanded where we look at our previous sermon which was based around Noah and the flood. This one will be a lot shorter than the last one. The last one we dealt with creation, the fall, and so we had a lot to go through and there were a lot of different interpretations that I was looking at in regards to creation because that is an important question for some people. For you maybe, you have it figured out and so you are quite sure and assured of what you think and understand and how you interpret and that's good and fine and and true and you should stay and stick with that but we wanted to I suppose open our eyes to the other options and to other people and at least acknowledge that there are no straightforward answers there are lots of grey areas within it and so lots of different people lots of different scholars lots of different ideas are out there and so it's good to know that and it's good to be aware of that and it's good to at least acknowledge that other people think in different ways from us. And we come into a little bit of that again tonight in terms of the flood. I'm just going to give you a couple uh, and then we'll really look at the story of that and how that means. All of these we can get very deep and we probably did last time into the idea of well how do we interpret, how do we look at these words, what do these words mean, how can we Put it together, how can we understand what this story, what these words, what this passage means? And in a way, we can get bogged down in that, whereas we should be saying, well, what does this tell us about God? Regardless of what this word means or that word means, regardless of the debate that is around those, which might be enjoyable for some, might you might want to avoid it for, for others. But what does this passage tell us? What are the truths that we can move forward with? What What is this story intended for? In other words, why did this person write it? They wrote it because they were writing about God. And so what were they seeking to tell us? What did they want to tell us? And I mentioned to you, if you, if someone was to come to you and say, well, you, you're a Christian or you believe in this God, you believe in this Jesus. Well, I don't have a Bible. I've never seen it. How would you explain to me how we came to this point that we're at and so you would go through your story of how you came to this particular time and place and point and how you look at the world around you would be included in that and how this creation started would be included in that and so for me as I look at it and, and as I read it that is the perspective that I come from in terms of this has been written but it's not a scientific document it's not supposed to stand up against science but science can help us understand why it was written and help us point out the times that we've got lost within it and it's really the the principle of it is that it's to tell us about God and what God is doing and what God can do and is capable of and so when we look at that and we look at the, the flood here uh, and now that's the perspective that I will come from we were looking at Noah and the Flood, which again might be a story that you've heard many times. It's probably a children's story you've heard many times, even though it's not a great children's story when you think of all that happens. It's uh, probably just because there's nice rainbows and nice animals and we can paint nice pictures. We kind of do that a little bit uh, and maybe forget about the rest of it. And so I'll probably as we go through this, I'll just refer to a few verses. It starts at chapter 6. Verse 1, you could maybe even go before that to chapter 5, verse 1, where it details the descendants from Adam to Noah, then goes on into Noah, and then with another set of descendants after that. Why would they include that? Surely it must be a literal interpretation if we have these genealogies. You could say that. Yes, there could be other arguments for and against that, of course, as always. Um, but we look in this, you can read through your own 
um, those descendants, if you want, which are all chapter 5. Again, they were very into their genealogies. A lot of the Old Testament is about retracing the steps and going back ways. A lot of these wouldn't have been recorded at the time, so you have people looking back, connecting the dots, essentially. Uh, and so how much we uh, put into that, how much we want to focus on that again, will we'll just be to either win an argument or not. And so we're going to look at chapter 6, 7, 8, 9 a little bit. You can read it in your own time because I'm only going to read some selected verses from it. But the flood, we had talked a little bit about it last time because in the creationist point of view, which is a literal, creationists argue that even that there are even fossils at the top of Everest leading us into their belief that the flood did not happen to an earth was the same as it is today. They believe that the earth was much flatter with no tall mountains like Everest. Everest when God flooded the earth uh, to get rid of the water, God lifted the mountains and made the deeps fall, so dispersing the water. That was the way in which the water kind of disappeared that the land moved the mountains were made and the depths were made to to kind of instead of just everything lifting up but kind of result you had to get rid of the water somehow i suppose so the result of this was the ice age there's a scholar suggests that it was an asteroid that created the ice age but that's a theory these theories tend to stay far away and allow no room for science and that was the creationist the literal viewpoint that there's no room for answer all the questions are in there and we can't say anything else apart from an asteroid that's but anyway i'll not go into that the story we have we will link it into creation because in this creation we had god creating all that he saw that he had all that there was and he saw that it was good. It was this Hebrew word tov, which is more a perfection, uh, an ultimate, amazing, wonderful. It was as God wanted it to be. And yet, when we come to the start of verse chapter 6, in verse 5 it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man in the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of this land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And so that's how the story starts. The rest of it then goes on to detail how he is supposed to make the ark, the appearance of the waters, what Noah is to do, the animals he's to bring in. But it all starts off with those verses and so how do we get from a creation that is perfect, that essentially exactly the way God intends it to be, to this point in chapter 6, verse 5, where the Lord sees the wickedness of all upon the earth and was sorry that he had made it. What we see in between those two points are these humans that come into the fray, that start to desire their own things, want to go after their own things, want to be... God essentially and that's where we see a certain freedom within this creation that God has designed it in such a way that humans are free to do these things he's not making robots that roam around his will isn't being forced on all of us so that we do just as he says and as it's planned but there's a certain freedom to this creation and so these people are given this freedom and they abuse that freedom essentially in that they pursue evil intentions they pursue every thoughts of their heart which was only evil continually as it says in chapter 6 verse 5 and they get to the point where they have done so much to this creation 
that God was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieves him and he decides, well, he needs to start over. And it's his creation. He can do what he wants, essentially. It's his to have. It's his to look after. It's his if he wants to do anything. And so that, if we look at God, tells us a few things about who God is and about what he is. We could say and could start by saying that that God actually loves this place but hates what it has become. And we see that there, that he, he had intentions for this place. It was perfect. It was as he wanted. He, he was in love with it. But it's become something other than that. And we see that in this story. It's become something that he didn't like, that he hated, that that wasn't the way it was intended to be. We could also say, and uh, it shows us about God, that he watches over it and sees all that goes on. That he watches over it and sees that every intention, every thought of the heart has become wicked and evil. We might say that he's powerless because he doesn't do anything up until this point. He just kind of lets it go along. He doesn't act. He doesn't step in at any point. Well, what's that about? Surely God is powerless, or we could say that he's simply patient with it. He gives that freedom a chance. He doesn't want to step in and over and beyond it, but gives it patience. And to us, we have to think about our freedom, about how we use it, about what we do with it. Because ultimately, as God sees this scene set out before him, as he sees this wicked intention, as he goes to recreate this place that isn't the way he intends it to be, there's this man called Noah who finds favour in his eyes. There's a man who's using his freedom well. There's a man who's going about what he does well. And so we have this story of then Noah and the flood where God seeks to, to flood this place to recreate it once again and to start it the way he intends it to be once again. When we look at the earth or the land or that which God floods, been looking up the, the actual word, the, the way it's interpreted interlinear from the Hebrew is that the, the floods on the earth and the rain that falls on the earth uh, was lifted up. The flood was on the earth 40 days. And so there's there's uh, there can be debate over the exact dimensions of this flood, the way in which it happens, the areas that it covers. And we're told that the Hebrew word herez is kind of means earth country and land in different ways it's most li mostly literal although it is used in a metaphorical sense as well it refers to the earth generally as a product of god's creation the arena for both humans and divine activity of particular interest is the flooding of the entire earth a classic indicator of god's terrible judgment on the sin of humankind elsewhere the use of herez in this general sense is largely mundane and so it seems to be saying here, particular interest is the flooding of the entire earth, a classic indicator of God's terrible judgment on the sin of humankind. And so it's not necessarily a dimension, a whole kind of area, but what they seem to say is that it's of interest that it is used in a way that refers generally to the earth as a whole, God's creation as such. And so we can assume that it happened in that way with that detail. So God 
creates this flood, produces this flood, and Noah goes in, the animals go in, they spend this time in there, they're locked in by God, and when the flood subsides, they send out this dove every so often, and then we see one of the biggest themes that comes out uh, of the Old Testament, and comes out generally and is referred to again and again. It's the first time this appears, this idea of the covenant, God's covenant with Noah. The idea of a covenant in the Old Testament, the word is used for covenant is the word berit. Berit, if we think of a covenant, an agreement, something that is a is something that's promised, something that is, is made between a number of people. We're told in the message of Genesis, a commentary, that a covenant is a declaration about the future relationship of two parties, a commitment based on a promise to enter that relationship and the growth of the relationship over time. Sometimes covenants are made between friends as equal partners, sometimes between kings and their subjects. And then when God makes a covenant, he sets the terms and conditions as a sovereign ruler, but his covenant people are invited to share real partnership with him. And so it's this declaration of a future relationship in covenant sometimes in the Old Testament or often refers to the agreement between people. But here we see the first of these covenants that God makes with people. It's an everlasting covenant. It's this covenant that he produces. It's not something that man creates with God. It's that which God creates with his people. In this promise, in this covenant that he makes, God solemnly promises that humanity's creational mandate will never again be interrupted by a suspension of the natural order. This covenant is described as everlasting or as long as the earth endures. And so it's this idea that what they have been, what we have been given, what humanity has been given to look after this earth will never again be interrupted by a suspension of the natural order because floods just don't happen by themselves. God doesn't just do that. So the natural order of the way the which in which this world works will not be suspended so God can do something like this again. The sign of that covenant was God's bow in the clouds while this visible symbol in the sky would undoubtedly reassure humankind its express intent was to remind God himself to keep his covenantal promise. And so there's this idea of the two-way, the idea that God is to keep his half of the covenant, of the bargain, of the deal with us as well. And that also produces a new beginning, a new promise. It's not that they're going back to the old way. It's that this is supposed to be starting afresh again it's God recreating the earth the way he intends it to be and it's about his intention for this place it's about how he desires it to be and so this new promise as Noah steps out of the ark as he steps into this fresh air and daylight of this new new world new order he is at a point where he can start the whole thing over again and hopefully recreate it in a way that is as God intends it to be but what we actually see as that story continues is that, unsurprisingly, the human heart was not changed. The sinful heart of humanity has not changed. And as that commentary tells us once again, here at the end of this story, the author returns to the theme, which is that the prologue was the very basis for the flood. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. If that were all that could be said, God would have to punish man with daily floods. Um, and so the, the story keeps continuing. It, it 
keeps this cycle going. It just repeats. But we have this covenant that God has made with man, that this is a new beginning, that there will be something different about this. And so the story of Noah is one about a, a movement from the very start of creation through this humanity, through the fall, as it's called in the Bible, to this point where things got as bad as they could. and But rather than start out, rather than scrap it and start all over again, we see this God who loves and cares for this creation and, and all upon it and within it, that he seeks to recreate it and so produces this sprig, this shoot, this person who will start again afresh the way he and God, this, the way God intends it to be. Uh, and for us, that means as we follow in the line of that, uh, as that principle, as that theme in our daily lives, there won't be the flood in that sense, but there is a way in which daily we get opportunities to recreate this the way God intends it to be in our workplaces, in our homes, in our social clubs, and everywhere we go, God's covenant still remains. And we see that we are part of the new covenant, which is comes about through Christ and what he has done for us. And within that covenant, there is the new creation that he brings forth. And so we seek to work for that kingdom, for that name, for that glory, so that we are part of the recreation of this place that God is at work in. And so as Christians, we don't just sit back and relax and hope that someday God will call us to be on an ark that will go somewhere and keep us safe. But we actively work for the good of that name and for the recreation of this place that we see and are part of. The story of Noah is a reminder that God loves this place but often hates what it becomes, that he watches over it and sees what goes on, that he is patient with it, much to our annoyance often and much as we wish he would do something more quickly and be more active. But it's also an opportunity that he gives us to show our freedom. And so may you, my brothers and sisters, use that freedom for the good of God's glory and the good of God's name, and may you find favour from him this day and this week and this life. Grace and peace.